All right, welcome Disability Law Show. Back at it indeed. John Scholes here with me, Tamar Agopian, and uh, as well, James Fireman, Sanfiru Tamarkin LLP. Anytime reaching out to those two and their team, uh, feel free to do so. You might want to have a chat off air for some uh, some length of time, get some information always available to you, one 855 821-5900 help at disabilityrights.ca and you can also uh, ask your questions through a website called mydisabilityquestions.com we'll get to both of those as the show progresses over the next hour and uh, yeah they're already coming in guys the emails and the questions so we'll get to those very shortly tomorrow I know you always start off get a set as they say with uh, a week that was case of the day what do you got working on pal well I was speaking to someone yesterday and her situation was um was one that triggered a couple of uh thoughts around how workers compensation benefits works with LTD and so I thought I would feature uh my discussion with her on the top of our show today and uh so she's out of BC she's actually worked uh, as a firefighter for since she was 19 years old now she's in her late 40s and she started developing uh, vestibular issues. So in other words, uh, headaches and dizziness and vertigo, lots of uh, neurological investigations and, you know, technical things, medical things that were investigated for her to try and figure out what was going on. But obviously, her doctors uh, eventually put her off work. The job that she was doing as a firefighter, as we all know, is very, very physical. And she was actually doing fire suppression for a long, long time. And right before, I would say about six months or a year before uh, the disability leave, she had actually gone to her workplace and said, look, I'm, I'm having these issues. Um, you know, they're getting more frequent, but is there something we can do to try and accommodate my situation? So she had a deep discussion with her employer and they put her into a lateral position where she didn't actually have to do uh, the physical elements of her job, uh, still working as a firefighter, but, you know, in a more... Uh, I guess, sedentary capacity, doing, you know, uh, more routine things, I would say, without getting too, too much into those details. uh, What ended up happening was she had some significant workplace issues uh, with the, you know, work setting, co-workers, various things. um, And that led to some mental health conditions um, being developed as a result of the harassment and bullying that she was experiencing in the workplace. So, All of this, you know, comes to a head, so to speak, and she goes off on her disability leave. And the insurance company uh, looks at this profile and approves her disability claim at the start of the claim. And so they accepted that she was totally disabled from her own occupation. And it's not clear, but I think that they accepted that the own occupation was the firefighting position. Uh, What's less clear is whether they considered the vertigo issues and the mental health issues together in tandem. Certainly seems like at the end of the claim they did. But this kind of bears fruit as to what happened at the end of the claim. So about 19, 20 months into the disability claim, she successfully gets approved for uh, workers' compensation or work-safe benefits. Most provinces that we work out of have this kind of a regime. It is separate and apart from disability benefits, but it is one that is available to individuals who have uh, health issues that prevent them from working that arose in the work setting. And so we have seen changes in legislation that have now allowed Uh, workers' compensation claims like this to be advanced for mental health conditions, not just physical things, which was what the workers' compensation seemed to be in the past. And so I give her a lot of credit. She did all of this by herself and she gets approved. 
With workers' compensation benefits, generally, there will be a couple of different um, buckets of compensation. One bucket will be an income loss component or a compensation for your salary that you're now not able to earn as a result of your health. So similar to long-term disability benefits. And then there's components like, you know, rehabilitation and this sort of thing. And she was approved for, for all of that. And so where it becomes relevant to the long-term disability claim is obviously now she's getting an income amount. And what we know, and James can attest to this as well, is that these workers' compensation regimes typically pay at a higher percentage than what you're getting for long-term disability benefits. Let's take that a step back for a second. Long-term disability benefits are never going to be 100% of what you were earning when you were working. Uh, more often than not, it's going to be two-thirds or 66.67% of what you were making. With workers' compensation regimes, it's a slightly higher percentage. And again, it depends, but generally it's 70%. I've seen it as high as 80%, but it will not be 100% either. Well, insurance companies know this, and they have included in their policies very routinely a section that says, well, we will pay you that 66.67% of your pre-disability income as an LTD benefit, but we will deduct any other sources of income that you get or are eligible for if it arises out of the same disability or related disability. And so the insurance company finds out about the workers' compensation approval. They obviously understand that there is this amount that now this individual is going to receive. And instead of saying, okay, well, you're still approved, but we're going to take a credit or an offset or a deduction for what you're getting for WorkSafe, and therefore we're not going to pay you anything, they decided to just simply cut off the claim. So they decided, you know what, we don't think you're totally disabled now. We think you should be able to go back to your job. And of course, this was rather convenient because it came within, you know, six weeks of the approval for the workers' compensation claim. So why am I bringing this up at the top of the show? I, other than to educate people to understand that these things can work in tandem, you can absolutely receive long-term disability benefits and workers' compensation benefits at the same time. And you should absolutely be pursuing all of these compensation options. But what do you do in a situation like this where long-term has denied and yet at the same time, you've now just been approved for your workers' compensation claim? You don't want to give the disability insurer a pass. Okay, I mean, especially if the disability insurer is not on good footing in their denial, which they were not in this individual situation. Her doctors are still recommending that she remain off work. In fact, the therapy now she's going to get is very focused on the trauma she experienced in the workplace. Plus, they're still trying to figure out what's happening with the vertigo and so on. And so in the context of that, the insurance company simply just said, look, we just don't think it's severe enough, which is a denial that we see very routinely. And on that basis, we're going to cut off the claim uh, because I think that they just want to save themselves the dollars at the end of the day if WorkSafe or workers' compensation stops paying. Because if they stop paying, insurance company doesn't get a credit. And now they are first payor as they should be. And they should be paying that long-term disability benefit again. It's a challenge. And so, you know, what can you do in terms of trying to move that needle with the insurance company? Well, you're not going to be surprised for me to say that I think a legal claim makes sense in circumstances like this. But the challenge becomes you're chasing compensation from an insurance company that may not be owed to you. And that's difficult. But you want to understand that you have the right to that benefit and you don't know how long the workers' compensation claim is going to be paid or payable. And so what I reminded this individual was, look, you have two years to start this legal claim from the moment that you were denied improperly by the insurance company. So 
it may make some sense in her limited situation to take a wait and see. Let's see how things go both with therapy and the workers' compensation benefit. And if either of those two situations change, then it may make some sense to actually start that legal claim against the insurance company. James, what do you think? Well, I've seen this type of situation as well. And not to surprise you, but I'm somewhat cynical in the (laughs) motives that I would attribute to the insurance company in making that decision. When you consider that the workers' compensation benefits are an offset, basically wiping out in almost all cases every dollar that the insurance company would have to pay for however long the workers' compensation benefit is being paid, then it puts the person who's receiving benefits in a difficult spot. As you mentioned, chasing a designation that you're disabled under the policy that may not actually result in any money, at least for an extended period of time. And that's something that a lot of people aren't going to have the foresight or the fortitude to decide to pursue because there isn't an immediate payoff, even if you're successful, even if you bring a lawsuit and you're successful and you go in front of a judge and the judge says, yes, the insurance company was wrong, you are still disabled. If you're still getting workers' compensation, that doesn't actually result in you getting any money. All it means is that if and when workers' compensation eventually decides to cut you off, then you still have your ongoing claim with your insurance company. And so insurers understand this. They understand that the cost-benefit analysis that is presented to an insured who is put in this situation is often such that it doesn't make sense for them or they just can't see how it makes sense for them to pursue it. But I agree with you, Tamar. I, I, I agree with you entirely. You need to protect yourself down the road. I mean, everything that you have to put in context. So if you have a disability, but it is something where you can see the light at the end of the tunnel, you can see that even though you're not able to work right now, in three, four months, you're going to be better. Perhaps in that situation, it won't make sense to pursue it, even if you are still legitimately disabled today. But like you said, tomorrow, then you can just wait for the uh, for the four months or however long it is. And as long as you're within the two-year limitation period, if things don't get better, then you can pursue it at that point. But I think if you are in a situation where your benefits are uh, or your disability is unknown, the duration of your disability is unknown, it is really, really important that you protect yourself from the possibility that workers' compensation is going to cut you off down the road. Because if they do, let's say you're in your 30s and they cut you off three or four years from now, and you haven't maintained that disability claim, that could be 25, 30 years of potential disability benefits that you should be entitled to, that you're no longer going to be able to receive because you didn't pursue it in time, even though at the time it was a zero benefit. All of which is to say you should not give up on it just because they've taken the convenient approach to cut you off. If all of this sounds confusing, it's only because it is. But if you're in this situation, please call us and we're happy to take it a little bit more slowly and make sure it makes sense so you can understand what your options are. 
And with that, guys, got to take our first break of the show. We'll do that and come back with more of your emails and questions. Help at disabilityrights.ca and mydisabilityquestions.com is where you want to go as well. That's free and anonymous anytime. We'll continue with more of the Disability Law Show. Hang in there. You bet. We're back. Disability Law Show. Tamara Gopian, James Fireman, always in attendance and ready to answer your questions anytime. Send them along. You can email help at disabilityrights.ca and mydisabilityquestions.com. That uh, particular website, of course, free and anonymous. It's searchable, too, so you can use that anytime. All right, guys, Damien's first out of the gate here. says, guys, my wife was diagnosed with schizophrenia and has been on LTD for nearly two years. Our insurer keeps asking for medical updates from her family doctor, even though this doctor is not responsible for her medication or treatment. We've asked the insurance adjuster to speak directly to her psychiatrist instead, but they're not doing it. Is this a tactic by the insurance company? Will this lack of awareness mean my wife's benefits will be cut off? What do you think? So look, anytime uh, anyone is approaching that to your mark, John, we know that the insurance company is going to double down on their efforts to review the medical information and try and figure out what's happening from a health perspective. Why? Because most disability policies have a change in the definition to continue to qualify for long-term disability benefits. And that change in the definition is a critical time where we see a lot of people getting denied for benefits. And I I don't want to suggest to Damien that it's not going to happen or that it's for sure going to happen, but certainly the quality of the review of the adjuster, the perhaps the lack of insight by this adjuster on the medical nuances on schizophrenia is a problem. It's absolutely a problem. And it's a problem that we see routinely. I mean, we've, you know, James and I have both asked uh, lots of questions in, in the context of examinations and questioning of adjusters on their training and their background. And I can tell you, it's very light. You know, you, you're maybe getting a, a basic uh, college or university degree, you get into an insurance company, and these top types of jobs are typically entry-level positions, and they do not require any sort of medical background whatsoever. And so when you've got a situation like Damien's and his wife's, I think all you can really do is to try and continue to provide all the information you think the insurance company should have. Just because the adjuster is burying his or her head in the sand and perhaps not wanting to, to arrange the doctor-to-doctor call doesn't mean that it shifts the onus on the insurer to do something different. At the end of the day, what courts have said is that there is an onus on the claimant. So on Damien's wife uh, specifically, saying that it is their responsibility to demonstrate total disability under the policy. So how do you do that? You do that not only by cooperating with the efforts of the adjuster and the insurance company to review your claim, but it's also to provide them all the medical information that they should have to have a complete picture. And so the fact that the adjuster is only looking at the family doctor's records and is not making the active effort to get the psychiatrist's records does concern me, but then it just puts that much more um, onus on Damien and his wife to make sure that that information is available. Now, When it comes time to making the decision, however, that's another kettle of fish, right? Because the adjuster then has to, or should in theory, look at all of the information, not just the family doctor's information, but what information they're getting from the psychiatrist. And they may or may not consider that in their overall decision about whether or not to continue paying the long-term disability benefit to Damien's wife. And adjusters and insurance companies have been known to cherry pick. That's what I'm getting at here is that it may still be that the adjuster is not going to give due weight 
to what the psychiatrist has said or what the treatment plan is or the validation of the diagnosis. We see that very often, very common reasons for denying these kinds of claims. But if they do that and they choose to specifically ignore helpful medical information that you've provided to them, well, guess what? <laughs> That's not going to withstand any sort of scrutiny by a court or a judge or a lawyer. You know, we would look at something like this and we would say there's absolutely a basis to start a legal claim and challenge the insurance company if it gets that far. But I want to be able to give Damien some practical advice. And the practical advice now is that you want to document it. You want to make sure that you're providing the information that's necessary and continuing to remind the adjuster. And hey, by the way, don't, don't only just consider the family doctor's information. You should also be looking at the psychiatrist's information. And here's all the stuff that this should be, you know, supportive or sufficiently, you know, supportive of the evidence that my wife continues to be disabled and not able to work as a result of her health issues. James, what do you think, pal? Well, I, I agree with everything Tamara said. The, the only part that I would add here is Damien asks whether this is a tactic by the insurance company. And it could be. You know, it could be that the claims handler is just trying to conceive of a calculated way that they can paper the file and get an incomplete report from the GP and be able to justify terminating benefits. But... The smart money here is on laziness and incompetence. Hmm. If it matters, that's where I'd be. That's where yeah. I'd be betting. Anyway, let's uh, let's move on to our next one, guys. We got tons of time here. MyDisabilityQuestions.com. As I mentioned off the top, a place for you to email your questions or at least ask your questions rather to uh, to James or Tamar for the show anytime. Says I have submitted a claims form to be reviewed for approval for LTD, and the case manager that is reviewing it mentioned that it may not be approved due to pre-existing condition clause. Can my existing disability claim for LTD not be approved? Yeah, well, it can <laughs> go ahead, James. Sure. Okay. So yes, it can. So I, I, this is a, an easy opportunity, I suppose, to talk about pre-existing uh, conditions in general and how they work. And one thing that's important to understand is that if you have access to both short-term and long-term disability benefits, typically there is no pre-existing exclusion for short-term benefits. So there are situations where someone will go on disability leave and get short-term disability benefits and the very same insurance company that said you're entitled to short-term will then say you don't get long-term benefits, and that's because the long-term disability policy will often have this pre-existing exclusion. And so what that means is that if you have a medical condition that causes you to be disabled, typically within the first year that you become insured under the policy, and so if it's a group policy, we're talking about, in most cases, the first year after you start a new job, so if you become disabled within the first year after starting a new job and your disability is a condition that you had prior to starting your job, then the insurance company will take a look at the language of the pre-existing exclusion to see whether or not it applies. If it goes beyond your first year there, then in virtually all cases, it won't apply anyway. So even if you have a pre-existing condition, if you start a new job, you get a new LTD policy, and you work there for more than a year, it shouldn't matter. If in the first year you become disabled, then you look at the language because the pre-existing exclusion clauses can vary quite widely from policy to policy. I know we talk about 
disability policies as though they are uniform. And for a lot of the concepts we're talking about, they are. They're more or less the same from one policy to another. But pre-existing exclusions is definitely one area where there can be a significant degree of variance policy to policy. So you need to look at the language. Some policies will only look at whether or not you received any treatment for that pre-existing condition within a certain amount of time before you became insured, usually something like 90 days. And if you didn't, then you're okay. Sometimes they will also have an exception to the exclusion that says if you work continuously after becoming insured for usually something like 13 weeks without getting treatment, then the exclusion doesn't apply and you would be entitled to your benefits. Sometimes it's just a matter of if you've ever had this condition before, then it applies and question whether or not that would hold up. But there are many different ways that the pre-existing exclusion can work. What you need to understand is, typically speaking, it's only going to apply if you become disabled in the first year after you become covered under the policy. And only if there is legitimately a pre-existing condition before you started. Now, a word of caution, though. Where I find insurers get themselves into trouble and overreach is in particular with respect to mental health claims. So very often when somebody has a history of depression and let's say they go on leave after a few months in their new, in their new job with anxiety and the insurance company will take a look and they'll say, okay, well you had depression before and even though it's not the same thing, it's indirectly related and therefore this applies because usually the exclusion clause, the pre-existing exclusion, is going to have language that says if you have a condition that is directly or indirectly related to something that you had before. And so they'll say, okay, well, you had depression before and that's indirectly related. No, it isn't. It's a different condition. It can be related if you had depression and anxiety before, but they are not the same thing. The Joker is not the Riddler. These are different conditions. You can have different physical conditions. You can have different mental health conditions. And so don't necessarily accept because the insurance company says that you had something similar before that it automatically means that they're right. It often doesn't. And there are many situations where I've seen these pre-existing exclusion clauses applied by insurance companies improperly. And we've been able to successfully challenge the insurance company and they pay. They pay what they ought to. Mark? A great way of explaining it, James, is because it's such a technical reason, right, that these insurers use to deny otherwise valid claims. That this is something that they have built into their policies, which, you know, I had looked into this long ago because, of course, I'm a disability law nerd. And so <laughs> they conceived of this because they were concerned about people, you know, insurance shopping, so to speak. So basically getting a job purely just because they wanted to get on a benefits plan or package. You know, most jobs will have a couple months waiting period and then you can be on the full plan. And insurance companies, disability insurers in particular, were concerned about people who have maybe a, a terrible cancer diagnosis, for example, and just starting to work at, uh, you know, some local, uh, you know, coffee shop or something just to get on the plan. And so you can understand, you know, that, look, 
there's a reason why they don't want to be collecting premiums in situations like this and then paying out claims for years and years for people who have really significant health issues and who were so, you know, diabolical, can I say that? Somewhat hmm. cynical approach, right, to actually going out and finding insurance. But I think that the percentage of that is so low compared to the very high percentage that James and I see of insurers using this either improperly or using it as a way to try and deter people from making these kinds of claims. And so it frustrates me that insurers have been successful in doing this and most people will see a technical decline like this and, and A, not even understand it and B, just assume that the insurance company has it right and they are disqualified for benefits. And so we've had lots of consultations with people who've been denied on the pre-existing condition clause on this basis where they come to us and they say, well, I'm told that I don't qualify. Well, that's not actually the case. You may be absolutely eligible for benefits. You may totally qualify because your claim is that, you know, your doctor is supporting that you're totally disabled and not able to work. And even to James's point, you may even have already received short-term disability benefits, and then you're getting this barrier for the long-term disability benefits. I don't want to give insurance companies a pass in situations like this. You know, their cynicism and the way that they approach these things and draft their policies shouldn't be a reason why people are deterred from challenging. And if you have a good basis to do that, that's what we're here to do is to help people navigate. So I appreciated James's explanation of a rather complicated concept, but again, one that, um, you know, we're happy to help people and talk them through and see what options they have. I know we've got a break in like 30 seconds tomorrow, but is this something insurance company will always look at for every claim? It's it's a default reaction is look for a pre-existing condition right away? You know, John, you know what's depressing is that they're getting better at doing it. So oh. in the past where I would first start out, I don't think I would see it as routinely. Now I think they're training their adjusters. If someone's making a claim within that first year of work and coverage, always do a pre-existing condition check. Right. And so, yes, unfortunately, they are doing it much more routinely than I used to see. Raj, you are up next with your email, pal, so stick around for that. In the meantime, you can send one along if it appears on this show, maybe, if not a future show for sure, help at disabilityrights.ca. The phone number to reach out to James and Tamar is 1-855-821-5900 as well. We'll continue with more of the Disability Law Show. Hang in. Back, Disability Law Show. Yep, you bet. Tamar Agopian, James Farman, those are the two you want to reach out to. Always ready for a chat and to help you out can be uh, murky waters dealing with that disability insurer and uh, frustrating rating as well to say the least 1-855-821-5900 help at disability rights.ca raj is next promised his emails coming up here we go says uh, guys have been on ltd for approximately 39 months for chronic pain and generalized anxiety disorder my doctor has indicated to my insurance company that my limitations are permanent however just now my insurance company is sending me to an independent functional capacity evaluation with an occupational therapist how will this evaluation affect my benefits can they return me to work or cut me off well they can cut you off unfortunately raj but they have to do their homework first before they do that and so what they do and it's not uncommon is these kinds of assessments or evaluations I think it is concerning that, you know, Raj, you've been on claim now for 39 months. That tells me that you've most likely gotten past that change of definition if your policy had that kind of change. And most certainly your doctors are saying your health issues are permanent. So you should be on claim and you should be continuing to receive your long-term disability benefits. And so what could be happening now is just simply an eager adjuster who's looking at this and they're trying to decide, are we going to continue paying Raj? Maybe they're going to put you on what's called long duration, 
And that means that there's going to be less active adjudication. But before they do that, they want something on their file that confirms uh, what you've already probably said to them, what your doctors have probably already said to them, which is, you know, that these conditions are permanent and they're not going to get better. Certainly, I know with dealing with clients who have generalized anxiety disorder and chronic pain that these things can worsen with time, they can relapse and remit. And so profiles like that, this is what all, you know, long-term disability benefits are meant to do is to pay people in these circumstances when they are not capable of working. But I would not get too hot and bothered just yet. I mean, look, you know, Raj has an obligation to attend this IME or if it's a IME, I don't even know. It looks, sounds to me like it is. Um, as opposed to, for example, an assessment to do, you know, rehabilitation, for example, which is another type of assessment that we see by insurers. And so, you know, he can participate, as, you know, should make his doctor aware that he's participating through this evaluation, should absolutely get a copy of the report that's generated from this evaluation, make sure that that copy gets sent to his own doctors, have his doctors review, he should review, if there's any errors, for example, those should be underlined, if a rebuttal report, for example, is necessary, that should be absolutely prepared in case the insurance company relies on their own um, evaluation to ultimately deny disability benefits. But what individuals need to hear is just because insurance companies do these kinds of evaluations doesn't mean they are correct in relying on them to deny claims. When people have their own doctor supporting disability, especially when they use the word permanent, which I know doctors are very hesitant to put out there, it then tells me that Raj's benefits should continue. And these policies pay you until you're 65 years old, potentially. And so depending on how old Raj is, that could be a long time of further benefits. And so I wonder whether that's factoring into the insurance company's decision to after now, several years later, decide to do this kind of an, of an evaluation is perhaps on the one side trying to decide how long Raj is going to be on claim with them or to try and bring that claim to a close or an end. And when the doctors are supporting Raj, his own doctors, that is, courts will prefer that. Courts will look at that and they will prefer that over any sort of hired gun that the insurance company, you know, uses or determines on that basis to deny benefits. James, what do you think? Well, I, if I'm being very generous for just a moment, and let's just take a face value that Raj's limitations are indeed permanent, as his doctor has suggested, that doesn't guarantee that you're entitled to benefits until age 65. As we have all learned over the last three and a half years, it turns out there are a lot of things that you can do remotely, that you can do out of the comfort of your own home. And so if you're someone that suffers from chronic pain and general anxiety disorder, it means that at least theoretically, there might be some occupations that you're able to do. Still a lot of questions in terms of your ability to actually function in those jobs, what your training and education and experiences, whether you would need to go back to school and whether that's even possible given the chronic pain and general anxiety disorder. So it doesn't necessarily mean that just because there are other options that he might be able to, but that your doctor has said your limitations are permanent isn't a 100% guarantee that you get your benefits until age 65. So keep that in mind. But very important, as you pointed out, Tamar, that Raj is at 39 months, which is well beyond the two-year change of definition, which means that Raj's insurer has, for the past 15 months, acknowledged that Raj is disabled from any occupation, 
that he's qualified for by training, education, or experience. Now, as I've just explained, that doesn't mean that it will always be that way, and there's no way to argue otherwise. But Raj's insurer, having accepted him for the last uh, 15 months as being disabled from any occupation, has the onus of proving otherwise at this point. If the test is the same and the insurance company wants to change your designation, they are the ones that ultimately would have to satisfy a court that your condition has improved or that there is some other job that you're now able to do. And that's not going to be easy for them, given how long that they have accepted that Raj is disabled from any occupation and given the permanent nature of his condition. So it is a possibility that they can make that argument, but it's not a great one. What I will say, though, is the question is a good one and a timely one about whether what this means and what they're going to do with it. Because what we do know is insurance companies don't like to spend money. And if this is an independent functional capacity evaluation, it means they're not doing it in-house. They have hired somebody else to do this functional capacity evaluation. All that means functional capacity evaluation. They're going to hire this occupational therapist and they will spend, usually it's part of a day. Sometimes it's two, two days. And they'll run Raj through all sorts of different uh, exercises to test his stamina, his strength, his ability to function in different environments and write a report based on that and using that information determine what he's capable of doing and not capable of doing. But if they're hiring an occupational therapist outside of their own organization to do that, it means that they are spending money. And if they're spending money, it means that they believe that in doing that, it's going to save the money down the road. And the only way that makes sense is if they see this as a likely uh, a likely scenario where they're going to be able to cut off Raj's benefit as a result of this. So I think Raj is, is quite correct to be careful about this. Now, he's going to have to attend unless there's some reason to believe that the functional capacity evaluation is inappropriate and it's going to set him back. It's unlikely the occupational therapist should be able to do the assessment without causing injury to Raj in any way, but it's still worthwhile making sure that your doctor is aware that this evaluation has been requested and can see what is going to happen and comment just to make sure that it is indeed appropriate. So very good question, Raj, a very timely question. You need to be careful about it. But ultimately, you know, tomorrow's correct. You're going to have to go to the evaluation and you're going to have to see what they respond with. And if they respond by saying that you can go back to work, well, that's when you give us a call and that's when we start the fight. Thank you, Raj. We'll take our uh, one final break and get back with more. In the meantime, the number one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Help at disabilityrights.ca. It's a disability law show, and we're coming back. Hang on, and we're back. Disability law show. You want to get in touch with either of these two, Tamara Gopian, James Farman, Sanfiru Tamarkin LLP. You can do so at one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. I know a longer private conversation is often uh, what you're going to want to do. So that's one way to do it. You can email your questions anytime. They might appear on this show later on. Help at disabilityrights.ca. And for quick, concise, easy to digest facts about LTD, things you may be wondering, ltdfaq.ca. Try that one out. Nolan is up next. Guys, 
Hello, I'm currently off work for an injury that is not healing quickly and may possibly become a permanent condition. I'm approaching the end of my disability period and they have told me that I should apply for long-term disability with the employer's insurance company. I'm 57 years old and have been employed at the company for only two years. I'm retired from a previous company and do a collect uh, regular pension in addition to my pay from my current employer. Part of the long-term disability process is that I have to go on EI sick benefits for six months and then on to the insurance company's LTD disability plan. My question is, being that I collect a regular pension, will I still be able to collect sickness from EI, then disability payment from insurance company, or does collecting the income disqualify me? Interesting. Really interesting. And so the, the quick answer is that I think no one can qualify for all of it but it really does depend on what the policy says. And so I always want to start with the disability policy and that section that we often talk about on the what we will pay or the amount we will pay. That's the section we really want to look at for long-term disability because we want to see what it says as to the credits that go into it. And so is there a credit, for example, for a pension? When I've seen these policies, and you know, I, I wonder if James is going to echo these comments or not, but when I've seen these policies, usually the pension credit that the disability insurer will get, if it's even in there, some policies don't even have it, but if it's even in there, it's usually for the same employer. So if it's not the same employer, I wonder whether Nolan can protect that pension payment from the insurance company getting a credit for it for long-term disability benefits. So that was my first comment is to try and figure that out as to whether or not that pension amount is protected. Assuming it's with a different employer and assuming that it's not in the policy at all, then I think there should be no issue whatsoever. He does want to be open and honest, though, with a disability insurer in terms of uh, there's a section in the forms, John, that say, you know, what other income sources are you yeah. receiving? You want to make sure that you put all of that in there, including EI sickness. EI sickness benefits is a little bit different, though. EI sickness benefits typically will mirror the short-term disability plan. So instead of getting short-term from your company, for example, or your disability insurer, you will be told, go get EI sickness. What I'm not totally understanding in Nolan's email is, is that happening at the same time or is it in addition to? Because I would be surprised that he would be entitled to short-term disability benefits and EI sickness benefits and long-term disability benefits. Usually EI sickness is the same time frame as short-term. And so once again, what we want to look at is the policy wording. Is there anything in the long-term disability policy wording that would take credit for government-sponsored disability benefits? The big one we usually talk about is the CPP disability. But depending on the words, would that then include EI sickness? It could. And so does that disentitle Nolan? It does not. So he's still entitled to long-term disability benefits, especially from what he described with you know permanency of health issues and certainly what it sounds like is an encouragement to, to pursue long-term. So if his doctors are in his corner that he should not be working, then by all means, he should make that application. But then it becomes a question of, is there credits, are there credits rather, and how long those credits go for? Because that's the other thing is that EI sickness benefits is only for about 15 weeks of pay, and it's at a very reduced amount for most people who are working. And so even if the long-term disability benefit takes a credit for that, it's not going to be a credit forever. So right. it will be a credit for perhaps a short period of time. And then after that, it could be a full uh, disability benefit that he's entitled to. But as I said from the start, the starting point is looking at that disability policy. What do you think, James? I, I agree with you in the result. 
my my experience is more limited in terms of dealing with people who are already receiving attention and i can't say that i've purposefully looked at a policy to determine that but having said that of course having read through literally thousands of policies that come across those provisions many many times and my recollection is typically they are worded in a way that would distinguish any pension whether it's disability or not that you were receiving prior to your leave and that would be excluded from what would be the deduction that's what i've seen in the past and so certainly that would exclude the pension from his from nolan's previous employer as being a deduction against the policy but where it would be interesting of course is if he had some previous disability pension even from the same employer potentially but it was already in place and he was back at work and receiving it and working in some other capacity depending on how the policy is worded that might also not be a deduction against what nolan might be entitled to and so ultimately I agree with you, Tamar, and I think most importantly is what you said at the outset, which is go to the policy. Take a look at the language because there may well be variance in how that is structured from one insurer to another. And even uh, within the same insurer, uh, when they have different employment plans, it can vary from uh, plan to plan. So you want to drill down on the language of that and be really careful about what it says. And ultimately, I also agree with you, Tamar, that you want to be upfront about that because the reality is Nolan is getting that pension. That is part of uh, his background, part of his income stream. And if he's not entitled to, he's not entitled to it. And he doesn't want to pretend that he is because if he were to put that out there and the insurer were to find out, then he's got a real big problem because that is something that his insurer is almost certainly going to come after him for if they find out that he shouldn't have been collecting benefits because there was an applicable deduction that he did not disclose to them. And then he may be in a situation where not only is he not getting benefits, but now he owes a bucket load of money to the insurance company that he's been receiving for some period of time. You really don't want to be in that situation. So be upfront about it. Take a look at the policy very carefully. And if you're having any issues trying to figure out what it all means, of course, there is a very good resource, which is us. Give us a call. We're more than happy to go through it with you. Take a look at what your policy says and give you our view on how it's likely to apply. And we are just about out of minutes, guys. Thanks so much, and thank you for tuning in and contributing to the show. If um, you did so through email, if it didn't get uh, read on air, it will be answered regardless, and you can keep sending those along to James and Tamar as well. Help at disabilityrights.ca. And finally, the phone number, one 855 5900 use it as you uh, as you wish and have a conversation with either them or their team as well and we'll catch you next time here on the disability law show